Today's scripture reading will be Zechariah chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. Zechariah chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. This is the word of God. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place, in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right, thanks, Christina, and thanks, Michael. So uh, I might have mentioned before uh, a guy named Charles Finney. Uh, he was uh, known as one of the great leaders of the Second Great Awakening. He's also been called the father of modern revivalism. And, and he developed during this time of the Second Great Awake, Awakening uh, what came to be known as the, the New Measures. And these were ways that he would go about uh, persuading people and helping them to convert or, or to make a decision for Christ. Uh, one, one famous example of, of one of these new measures uh, was what became known as the anxious bench. And what it was, there'd be this bench somewhere near the, the pulpit, and those who were, were nervous about their spiritual condition would be kind of directed to go sit there, and he would really hone in on them and, and really would, would try to, to lead them and, and, and persuade them with all his might to make a decision for Christ, to convert uh, and some say that, that this anxious bench was the precursor to the altar call that we're probably more familiar with. Uh, but he believed that if a person did not convert, it was an issue of will not, not an issue of cannot. It just You have to use the right means 
to, to, to push them over the edge to make a decision for Christ. So any person can come to Christ. Some just won't. And, and that's a very natural way to see conversion. Uh, it's the way I've, I've understood it most of my life. But surprisingly, it's just not what the Bible teaches. And, and there's a subtle but profound difference between going to, to, to try to have someone make a decision for Christ, and that's what you're shooting for, or to simply proclaim Christ crucified and call to believe and repent. And so when it comes to evangelism, Charles Finney, he was a great salesman who knew how to close the deal. He could get numbers. He could go to a church or a meeting or a revival, and he could say, I had this many decisions for Christ. But here's the problem. If true conversion is supernatural, and it is, then being a really good salesman who can close the deal is not a strength. It's a weakness. It's a big problem in the church, and we're all probably somewhat aware of this. Some, somebody made a decision when they were eight years old, and they cried, so it's real. Or whatever it might be, to, to be an evangelist and a good salesman, those two things don't need to, to go together. As the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and, power, and of power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Now, why do I bring this up? It seems to me that the scriptures are constantly telling us it is God who saves and that we should set our hope in God and not set our hope in ourselves. Look to the power of God and not to the wisdom of man. And where we often go wrong is that we look inward or we look to others rather than looking up. And our hope continually drifts away from looking up to looking inward or looking to others. That's some of what I was mentioning a little bit ago in our call to worship. It's just that we need to recalibrate our hearts and minds to look up. You know, when, when I was in college is when my life really changed. It was my junior year. And, and some might, uh, some casual observers might say, you know, that was when Kevin became religious or, or maybe that was when he got his priorities in order or he grew up. Uh, and that's actually kind of how I saw it in a lot of ways at the time. But now, 20 years later, after understanding the scriptures, I, I see it differently. And, and this is huge. When you come to this conclusion, when you look back on when you converted, and you don't think, that's when I made a decision for Christ, and you think instead, that's when God came and got me. And he worked there in that moment. I didn't just make a decision for Christ, but God took initiative and was changing me on the inside, and then I began to look different on the outside and started doing different things. And the reason my life changed wasn't because I heard a really good message. I'm sure I did. It wasn't because I was a part of a great ministry or church, though, though I was. It was the power of God at work in me that would not be denied. And so the Spirit can work through a bad message and a clumsy ministry and all that stuff to work through it and change me because the work of God doesn't rely on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. 
And I think we need to remember that, that if we have a pulse, spiritually speaking, it's because God did it. It's not because we grew up, got mature, got a priority straight or anything like that. It is an act of God. And here's why that's important. If we think we came to love and follow Jesus by being good people and not by the grace of God alone who, who moved in us first, then we will be prone in all aspects of life to look inward, right? To, 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 to do right, make right decisions and all that. And the tendency to look inward rather than upward is like cancer to the Christian soul. And we're all sick with it. And again, going back to the call to worship, we're here to, the, the, the worship service is hopefully like chemo to the cancer of looking inward and not to Christ. So that's what we're here doing with a clumsy message or whatever else we might be doing. We pray that by the Spirit, God would help us to no longer look inward, but to look upward. And we need His Spirit to make us do that. So our tendency is to look inward rather than upward. It is cancer to the Christian soul. And we are here studying the Word, singing worship to God to help us look up instead of inward. Now, we just read Zechariah 12, 1 through 10. And in that, we see God's plan to save and rescue his people again. And then in 12.10, we see something interesting. We see the Trinity at work. In the Old Testament, and in chapter 12, verse 10, we see the Trinity at work. So, so today, what I'd like to do is focus on Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, and consider how the Trinity works in regards to how God saves his people. So I want to talk about the work of the Father the work of the Spirit, and the work of the Son. So first, the work of the Father. Now, when you consider how the Lord works throughout the Scriptures, uh, it is always the Lord taking initiative and it is the Lord's work being done and His people or His, his operas. It's who He's working through. Like, for example, in Genesis 12, we read about the call of Abraham. And in the call of Abraham, God puts all the weight not on, not on Abraham. He doesn't say, hey, we're, we're really counting on you up here. We want you, to do, want you to do a good job. It's time to get serious. He puts it all on himself. He says, I will five times. I will, I will, I will. So he's putting all the weight on himself. Then they're in Egypt. They're being brought out of Egypt. They get to the, to the Red Sea. And the, the, they're trapped between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army. And you have this beautiful verse in Exodus 14, 14. It says this. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to stand still. And he does that over and over throughout the scriptures. And I can share dozens more examples of the Lord putting the weight of rescue on himself and not his people. But I'll, let's move forward to Zechariah chapter 12. And I want to look at verses 1 through 10 and just kind of see where here again, the Lord is putting the weight of saving his people on himself. So let's look at uh, Zechariah 12, verse 2. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. On that day, verse 3, on that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone. Verse 4, on that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic <clears throat> and its rider with madness. Verse 6, on that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood. Verse 7, and the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first. Verse 8, on that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Verse 9, and on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Verse 10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. When things start happening, it's going to be because God is at work. 
It might seem like it's because people are doing things because they are, but it is God behind it that's making it happen. God is bringing it all about. It's going to begin with him. And so it is with us and our conversion and being born again. You can no more brag about being born again than you can brag about being born in the first place. You came to trust and follow Jesus because God the Father made it happen. Not because you made a good decision, not because of any other reason that begins with you, because it begins with God the Father. And this is what Jesus teaches in John 6, 44. He says this, No one can come to the Father, come to me, unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can. No one is able to. And then he said it again in something similar in John 6, 65. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by uh, granted to him by the Father. No one can. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father does something, unless he grants it or draws him in. So it is not a matter of will not, according to Jesus. It actually is a matter of cannot. This means that Charles Finney was wrong to apply these new measures in trying to, to make converts or trying to get people to make a decision for Christ. It assumed that if the right technique was applied, then people would come to Jesus. They'd make a decision. They'd convert. I've often thought, you know, if I could go and talk to myself my, when I was, was 18, you know, you know, how would I get to myself? And, and I came to a conclusion not long ago. There's no getting through to that guy. <laughs> I mean, I could, I could use guilt. I could use, you know, whatever um, fear. I mean, I could do what. Th- th- there was just no getting through. There was a sense where when, when God the Father was going to draw me into him, there was, no, there was going to be no denying that. But until then, I could not come. So here's what it means. When you came to trust and follow Jesus, it did not begin with you. You didn't just become a more mature person with a good decision. It was a supernatural act of God the Father who granted you to follow Christ and who drew you to follow Christ. And how does God the Father do this? The same way he orchestrated the the rebuilding of the temple and everything that was going to take. And we read about that in Zechariah chapter 4 where he says, the famous verse, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. Or to use the words of Zechariah 12.10, God the Father poured out on us a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So so let's shift over and talk. We talked about the work of God the Father. Now let's consider the work of God the Spirit. Let's look again at uh, chapter 12, verse 10. It says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So the initiative is coming from God. I will pour out on the people. I will pour out the Spirit on them. And it's not coming from the inhabitants of Jerusalem. It's coming from God. And what he is doing specifically is he's going to pour out a spirit of grace and of pleas for mercy. So what does it mean to have a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy poured out on you? The the phrasing seems to apply that this spirit of grace and pleas for mercy uh, isn't just a mood, but it is actually the Holy Spirit himself. And that work of the Spirit here is applying forgiveness, where we see the spirit of grace, and where pleas for mercy is repentance 
uh, uh, forgiveness and repentance to the heart is being applied by the Holy Spirit. And so when this is applied to the heart, there is a sense of forgiveness and a sense of repentance that falls on our hearts. And that is what changes people more than anything else, more than a good sermon, more than Bible reading, more than good community, more than church attendance or prayer. It's the spirit of God at work on a heart that really changes people. What changed me and you and what continues to change me and you isn't just going to be a good sermon or a good book or a prayer group or community or anything else, any of those great things, but is the work of the Holy Spirit applying forgiveness and grace to your heart, softening these hard hearts that we have. And look, our natural disposition towards sin is to justify it or explain it. Whenever I've gotten mad or done something selfish and it's kind of come to the surface where I get called out on it, I can't think of a time ever where I didn't have a good reason for it. You know, I don't just, you know, just do selfish, mean, bad things for no good reason. I usually have a good reason for it. And it's so hard for me to work past that. And I would even say it's almost supernatural for me to work past it and just say, I just did it because I was a sinner. And it takes the spirit of God for us to see our sin truly and to truly grieve over that sin. You know, some people might think Christians are, are that's a judgmental group of people you have there. And, and, and maybe they're right sometimes. But I'll tell you this. If you encounter someone who, who has encountered the gospel, and, and as they've encountered the gospel, God's spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, God's spirit has applied to that heart forgiveness and repentance, there are no sweeter people than those people. Many of you know them, you're around them, and they are the sweetest people because they cannot imagine elevating themselves above you and looking down on you. They are not the ones who, like Jesus' parable, thank God for not letting them be like those bad folks. They are the people who think, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And look, we all know the difference between being truly sorry and being caught uh, or being sorry you got caught. When you're sorry you got caught, you're dealing with consequences and just, oh, that's a, that's a pain. Uh, but when you're truly grieved by the work of the Spirit, as we're seeing in Zechariah twelve ten, where they are mourning in this different way, it, it hurts a different way. And what we're seeing here is actually God's Spirit in you grieving, God's sorrow for sin being expressed and felt in you and through you. And, and we know this grieving in the Holy Spirit happens because we read about it in Ephesians 4, where Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And some of you have experienced this. You've sinned. You've done something, and you know it was offensive to God, to others, or whatever. And you felt grief over it. But it went a layer deeper. It, it struck you in a deeper, in a more intense way. And what I'm saying the Scriptures seem to be teaching is because the Holy Spirit was grieving through you. God was actually grieving through your, through you, through his spirit. And that's why it's the spirit of God that actually truly changes us. It makes us unable to remain at peace with sin. And Ezekiel read about the spirit. It gives us a new heart. Ezekiel 36, uh, 26 and 27 says this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. 
So the Spirit gives us a new heart. It changes our heart that was hardened and indifferent towards God and softens it by making it sensitive towards God, even having new desires to walk in His ways in ways that we almost can't explain. We just want to. These new desires just came in us, and we just want to follow God, and we almost can't explain why we have this 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 proclensity to follow God. It seems it's new and it's foreign. And this, you know, in a kind of a silly example, uh, for the longest time, I didn't like olives. And whenever I was getting something to eat and had olives on it, I tell them, hold the olives, don't want those. One day I made a mistake and I didn't realize olives came with it. Uh, I'm eating my salad or whatever it was, and there's olives in there. And they were delicious. And I was like, I don't know. I don't feel like I've ever had an olive before. Like, so, so for like, for all my life, I've been, I think it was just maybe the look of them. I don't know, but I just, I, I never liked olives. And then I did, and I can't get enough. Like I had olives yesterday. I'll have them again today. And so it's almost like this, this new desire came about that I can't quite explain. And what I'm saying, the reason conversion is supernatural. And if we put all the weight on a decision, one random day, then we're going to miss it because it's not just about making a decision. It's about a new heart, and that's supernatural. We can't drum that up. There's no new measures to make it happen. It is a supernatural act of God by the Spirit. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He changes our tastes, and he gives us, there's this foul aftertaste that comes with sin that we can't quite explain. And there's this there's this draw to follow Jesus that we might be, maybe can't quite explain. You know, I, I remember in high school and summer college, serious Christians, I'll be honest, y'all, I, I thought they were faking it. I, I just didn't buy it. You know, they were excited about going to church. I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> Who gets excited about church, right? Um, and so anyway, I, I, just, I just didn't get it. And maybe some were faking it. Maybe I don't know. I don't want to judge anybody's hearts. But here's the thing, is that when the Spirit of God lands on you, you are different. It changes your desires. And the way I was viewing these people who I thought were faking it, I wasn't viewing them with the idea that the Holy Spirit was in them and changing them and giving them new desires. So just because something was unnatural to me doesn't mean it's unnatural to others who would have the Spirit. You know, when, when I was a, a kid growing up in church, uh, church was just brutal, like maybe for most of us. You know, I just went into the, the music uh, and the sermons were just brutal. It was just like I tried to numb my brain for 30 minutes to get through it. Just want to get out. Um, and then here's one of the things that I, I just was, was so shocked about myself when when God began to change me. So, yeah, I guess I'm a junior in college. And every night of the week, I wasn't studying anyway, but I was usually hanging out with friends or doing something. But every night of the week, I went to a different campus ministry just to hear the Bible taught. That for me was insane. But I was just drawn in. And look, that did, that's not going to come from making a decision. It's not going to come from that. It's going to come from a new heart that all of a sudden, like, like the way I had this new taste for olives, has this new taste for the Word of God. All of a sudden, it's like, hey, hey everybody, God's spoken. It's in a book. We should pay attention, you know, to where before it was just of no concern to me. It's the Spirit giving new tastes and new desires. But one of the most important things the Spirit does is not just give us new desires, but moving our eyes to look on Him who was pierced. So let's look at, uh, let's consider the, my third point, the work of God the Son. 
Look again at Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David, that's God the Father, the, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit, God the Spirit, of grace and pleas for mercy, so that, so here comes the reason for all this, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So what is the purpose of God the Father pouring out the spirit of grace and pleas for mercy? <clears throat> it is so that they will look on him whom they have pierced. Now you guys are pretty bright and I probably don't need to connect the dots here. I'll do it anyway. That's Jesus Christ crucified. That's the reason that God's pouring out the Spirit is to move our gaze to Christ crucified, Him, him, him whom they pierced. And, and one reason we know that this is talking about Jesus is that this is what the New Testament teaches. In John 19, 37, it's explicitly reaching back into Zechariah 12 to talk about Christ. And we see it again in Revelation 1, 7. So they're connecting the one who is pierced with Jesus. It seems very clear to me. And this idea of the Holy Spirit causing the people to look to Jesus is also what Jesus taught. In John 16, 14, Jesus says this, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. And he will glorify me. Speaking of the Spirit, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit glorifies Jesus. If you're going to make a job description for uh, God, the, God the, the Spirit, part of that job description is going to be to glorify the Son. So when we receive the Spirit of God, when we are converted, when we're born again, a program is downloaded into our soul that is eager to glorify Jesus. So when we're converted, when we're born again, God gives us the spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. We realize that we're forgiven in a way that is, uh, that is life-changing and, and hits us in a way that it didn't previously. We have deep sorrow over our sin and our need for mercy. And that plea for mercy is mingled with grace. And as those pleas for mercy are mingled with grace, the Holy Spirit, as conviction is going on us hard, we're, we're, we're feeling uh, sorrow for our sin as one has sorrow for their firstborn and the Holy Spirit has that come down hard and then all of a sudden moves our eyes to Christ crucified, him who was pierced and we glorify him and find deep joy in doing so. And that mingling of grace and pleas for mercy and Christ crucified, it changes us. It thrills our souls, and it frees us from looking inward and instead beholding him who was pierced for us. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, <clears throat> wherever the Holy Spirit does really come, it always leads, <clears throat> excuse me, it always leads the soul to look to Christ. Never yet did a man receive the Spirit of God unto salvation unless he received it in bringing of him to look to Christ and to mourn for sin. The work of the Spirit in someone's life calls them to set their gaze on Christ. They see Christ crucified for their sins, 
and a new and different sorrow begins to emerge in their soul. And it's not just that they did something wrong. It's that they, it's that Christ was pierced for them, for that sin. And it carries meaning in a new way. And the spirit of God is what makes us Christ centered. You don't become Christ centered because you made a good decision. You become Christ centered because it's the work of the spirit of God in you. And, and why would we do anything? Why would we put anything else as central rather than the, the creator and sustainer of the universe who died for us? Why would anything else be central than him? You know, after, after Missy and I got married and we're like, like literally after we got married and we're walking, you know, out of the, well, we were outside and there's a long story. We were, we were walking after our vows. Um, and, uh, and so I was just thrilled. I think Missy was terrified. I was thrilled. I felt like I really married up. And so anyway, so we're, we're walking down. I'm super excited. I'm thrilled. And you know what question wasn't going through my mind? You know what I didn't ask Missy as we were walking down the aisle? I didn't say, so, um, how much can I hang out with other girls without you being weird about it? That's crazy, right? Because at that moment, my affections are just so located here. I'm not thinking about what's okay and what's not okay. And this is what happens when, when, when someone is seeking God void of the Spirit. Hey, what are the rules? What's okay and what's not okay? Can I do this? Can I not do that? Was well, it okay if I don't do this, but if I do this over here? Or if I did bad here, I'll make up for it here. That's just not how it works with the Spirit who, who stirs our affections for Christ. And the person who is filled with the Spirit of God, the Spirit of grace and pleas for mercy and sees Christ crucified and finds deep joy in glorifying him isn't worried about technicalities of what's in and out or what's okay or not okay. And when we do, we know we are drifting away from the work of the Spirit. But when God the Father grants us to come to Jesus and draws us to him, and when the Spirit melts our hard hearts by, by mingling grace with pleas of mercy, with putting our eyes on Christ crucified, and we find that mercy and grace in the face of Jesus Christ, the one who was pierced for us, then we might just experience what John Stoker wrote about in his great hymn when he wrote this. Thy mercy is more than a match for my heart, which wonders to feel its own hardness depart. Dissolved by thy goodness, I fall to the ground and weep to the praise of the mercy I found. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this is good news. Our salvation is not depending on us. We can set our hope fully in you, and it is your joy and delight to set our gaze on Christ, to rejoice in his work, uh, and to give ourselves to him. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would set our eyes on the Son of God, Christ crucified in a new way that we might rejoice in him and glorify him and know a deep, deep joy that comes from your spirit. And Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.